x will approach infinity, and then what? Well, I mean, without an identifiable exponent or proportion or its variation upon any scientific notation, then who knows? Maybe we'll be left with two quantities, A and B, and we know that when A is greater than B, it's then said to be in a golden ratio if A plus B over A equals A over B. That's true, but are we using the recursive or the quadratic formula? Either or, as long as the Fibonacci numbers are in their correct mathematical sequence. I mean, either works, right? Well, you'd have 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, and so on. But don't even get me started on the golden ratio in geometry with the pentagram. That opens up so many doors. Okay, well, golden spiral or Kepler triangle? Golden spiral any day. Oh, okay, I thought you'd say that. Well, at the end of the day, it's just a conundrum and a mystery after all, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But you know what else is a goddamned mystery? Why my poop is green? Or why the rich continue to become richer, while us poor peasants who toil day after day just trying to improve your lives only continue to become even poorer than we were yesterday? Or why we still grow hair around our assholes? So unnecessary. You'd think that after all these years of evolution, right, and all the shaving, waxing, zapping, our bodies would have just stopped producing hair follicles around our anus. Just saying, man. Yeah, I know. But don't even forget about all that bleaching as well. Oh, bro. Everyone's so bleach-happy these days. Well, Scott, while those things you just mentioned are some of the world's greatest mysteries indeed, they are not the subject matter of today's show. But they may just become a future episode. I look forward to researching the one about your hairy asshole. I promise that I won't taint the work and find myself in a hairy situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gosh, your (laughs) jokes are just going into a black hole of... Black hole indeed. ...base humor. Well, that might be one of the best episodes ever far in the annals of future history, today we are going to talk about the mystery that is, or was, the beautiful Cindy James. And we give a prolonged shout-out to a superfan named Dramatic Bridge on Reddit for recommending the story, so thank you, Dramatic Bridge. And we will have the sources for both part one and part two of this episode in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for recommending this story, Dramatic Bridge. Hopefully it's not a bridge too far. True. But thank you for becoming a fellow paranaut, Mr. D. Be. But wait, you too, our dear listeners, can become Paranauts. Just go on over to Twitter and follow us there. You can also follow us on Facebook, maybe buy us a coffee, chit-chat. Also, if you donate to the podcast, we will send you some stickers, which are pretty fucking great, let me tell you. You can go over to our Facebook page and check those out. And we will always, always love and respond to a good email. So email us, please, at paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. Hit us up, my homies. Hit us up. Hit us up, man. Yeah, and actually, anyone who contributes to our Ko-Fi on either a one-time thing or a reoccurring thing, such as a monthly donation, you will become a Paranaut. And yes, we will send you some stickers. And Ko-Fi is like Patreon, but you don't get screwed with fees. And anyone who donates through Ko-Fi will receive some cool stickers to go put wherever you see fit. The tram, the trolley, the train, an airplane, if you can get away with that. The neighbor's car bumper, a stranger's baby stroller. Peel and stick, that's all you gotta do. But about the emails. Yeah, Hillary. What about the emails, Hillary? We actually received quite a few this past week. Should I read one? Yeah, I think we should. We'll transition into it. Alright, so this comes to us from StandUpSteve72. Well... Hello, StandUpSteve72. Yes, hello. So StandUpSteve72 sends to us this email in which he says, well, actually, Scott, why don't you read this one? Okay. Uh, Hello, I email you from my beautiful country, Sweden. 
The reason I am emailing is because there is a serial killer here by the name of Tor Hayden who killed nine people in about one year. He was a police officer and pretty much used an axe to kill his victims and then used fire to try to cover the crimes up. It's crazy, and I think you guys could do a good job of it. The Valley of the Headless Men, episode one and two. Wow, lots of sket pasig being caused all over the shop. We have you playing over the loudspeaker, so about 12 of us can hear it. You guys are great. Keep it up. You've got our ears in Sweden. Man, hell yeah, stand-up Steve72. We will cover Tor Hayden, and hopefully soon, so... Don't worry, man. We got you. We got you. Yeah, that's a cool email, man. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Stand Up Steve 72. That was very Sweden of you to give such a glowing email. Much appreciated. Oh, God. <laughs> We're always keeping it up here, Jeez, by the way. man. You're going to scare people away, bro. And I'm not sure what Sket Sig means, but I'm sure it means something really awesome. I'm sure it's something good. We should look that up later. Yeah, yeah probably should. totally look that up. Uh, we got another one. You said we have a lot, so there's got to oh, be yeah. another one we can read somewhere around here. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll read this one. This this one comes to us from Creature99 from Ohio. Not uh, the 98th or 97th. Nope. It's Creature99. Creature99. Right on, man. So Creature99 says, Hello, I've never written into a podcast before, but I came upon yours while I was looking for similar podcasts to a couple others I already enjoy listening to while I drive or when I'm at work or sometimes when I'm at a family gathering. Well, true, true. Yeah. Anyway, I found your podcast to be quite interesting and funny. I really like the Pets That Murder episode you guys just did. That was hilarious. I'm a bit of a nerd, and I think you guys do a great job. I'm always looking forward to your next episode. Wow. Man, that's pretty cool. That just, like... Warms my this. This is why we do what we do. You know yep. what I mean? It's for you guys. It's for you guys. For the listeners. Hopefully, Creature Ninety Nine ch- tells or at least shows this to creatures one through ninety eight. You know <laughs> I mean? So we can get some more for sure support. But yeah, that was pretty sweet. Yeah, Creature Ninety Nine. Make sure to spread the word to the other ninety eight. <laughs> um, but I was I was not expecting that email when I checked them this morning. Um, it's a good change from the usual pictures we get sent to us with captions like. Do I look hot? While their face looks like they're smelling a bad fart. Yes, their own fart. Yes. Yeah, but all kidding aside, let's move on. And by moving on, we must by all means necessary tickle the listener's whiskers with the segment that is always on everybody's mind. The one and only Trey. Poor Trey. Yes, you will only find this world-changing segment here at the Paranautica Podcast. The Trey Love that custom jingle. Always excellent. Yeah. We should probably pay those guys. Um, so this first Trey Portray segment comes to us last year, actually. So we're looking a little bit in the past. A man who was driving presumably to the gym, or maybe coming from the gym, was moving protein powder from his protein bag into his protein shake while driving. You know, something everybody does once or twice in their life. When he struck a parked car after veering out of his lane, the airbag deployed. The knife he was using, which I don't know why you'd be using a knife to do this, shot from his hand into his throat. When police came on the scene to the accident, he was dead from loss of blood from a severe stab wound in the neck. That's fucked, man. Yeah, bro. This guy's just trying to get swole, you know what I mean? And instead... Just stab the fuck up in his car. Who the fuck is using a knife to transfer protein powder into a shake? I mean, maybe that's all he had, but 
fuck, man. That's the part that lost me. Like, what? You know, if you're the type that's going to be shaking it up in the car because, like, regularly, you would think you'd have, like, a more ideal utensil for that. But Right. Especially well, if this guy is going to the gym, you know, routinely, you'd think you'd have a spoon. Yeah, dude. So, or just pour that fucker in there. You know, like Maybe he we'll, just likes the danger of it all, like likes the knife, you know. <laughs> one of those guys. Yeah, it just uses a knife for everything. Everything. You know, uses it to stir his soup or you know, just like one of those to people. Eat a soup. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was his last that was his last pump. Um, Should have pumped the brakes. Oh I'm just kidding. We're damn. not vic- we're not Ooh, victim blaming that, here. Let's pump the brakes on that judgment there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, I guess All the right. PSA, ladies and gentlemen, do not use a knife when you're mixing protein shakes while driving. If you will. That was last year. That happened last year. Oh, he also wasn't buckled. I forgot to mention oh. that. He, d- he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. He was oh, taking a shake while driving, and uh, he was speeding as well. Oh, so, All right, so the parked cars a... that he hit, five more cars were also damaged at that wow. time because he hit them with such high velocity. So, yeah, that's a PSA on what not to do. Don't speed, wear your seatbelt, don't use a knife to mix your protein shakes. Um, this next uh, story I have for Trey Portray, this is just more of a, um, kind of an interesting story here. Have you heard of Robert Philip Hansen before? Um, yeah, he was the uh, that spy from, I don't know, like the 80s or 90s or something. That's correct. And for those of you who don't know, this spy was responsible for the largest U.S. intelligence security breach in U.S. history. That's crazy. For 22 years, this man who worked for the FBI spied passing information of the U.S. to the Soviets and and then later to Russia. Um, yeah, 22 years of that in his employment as an FBI special agent until he was discovered in February of 2001. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's a crazy story. So the reason this is relevant is because this man just died in prison on June 5th. He was born in April on April 18th of 1944, and he died June 5th, 2023, in prison. At the time, this spy was active and actively passing information from the FBI to the Soviets. There was another American, Aldrich Ames, who was working at the same time in the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, who was also compromising U.S. secured documents, passing them to the KGB. So when the Americans caught this man... They they thought, oh, wow, this is going to resolve all of our open um, security issues that we're investigating, and it didn't. So they were like, wow, there has to be a second person out there. And finally, they paid an unnamed anonymous source in Russia $7 million. Holy fuck. And then they gave up the name of the mole, which wow. was Hansen. So he was arrested in his home in February of 2001. And then, of course, pled guilty to 14 counts of espionage and one count of conspiracy to commit espionage. And he was sentenced to 15 life terms without the possibility of parole. This was all to avoid the death sentence, by the way, and was incarcerated at ADX Florence until his recent death. Yeah, that's that's intense, man. The whole... The whole spy game thing is fucking nuts, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Double agents everywhere. I think he might have been a double agent. Um, According to this, he literally just worked as a regular FBI field agent, and they didn't task him with spying on the Soviets or anything. He just oh, okay. decided to start doing it. He literally they, he, he was charged with putting together a database of 
you know, certain Russian information just for catalog purposes, something really routine and boring. And instead, he found contacts, which he then took it upon himself to reach out to and offered his services just out of nowhere. And when he was questioned later about his motives, he didn't have any political motives. He didn't have any, like, you know, self-righteous sort of, like, inner, you know, debate with himself. It was just he wanted money. It was all financial. And so he, yeah, he just started passing information over there just of his own free will for no good reason other than to just get paid more than he was making. Jesus. So, yeah, just a cold-blooded spy, bro. That's yeah. that's all there is to it. It's not like he was like, I had Russian family that, you know, there was <laughs> there was no like tortured hero story. He simply just wanted more money, so he had the sources and he's like, "Well, I will sell this to Russia." For yes, a lot sir. Of money. Yeah, so he would just uh do dead drops and that's how he was caught as they spied on the America spied on him while he was doing a dead drop. And so they had the actual evidence to to like pin him on it. Um, but yeah, he uh, he recently died. I wonder who that KGB agent was that the uh, FBI paid seven right? million to. Yeah, who was that guy? That's who I want. You know, know that that person obviously knew a lot more information. Oh, for they're sure. On too. And I, I almost wonder, like, how is this the only person that uh, exactly? You know, they used him to identify. Like this guy would have been a very useful person. You know. Well, we'll just give him seven mil and they'll they'll roll or whatever. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was it's just a really horrible case of of espionage from from American soil, and he was actually responsible for the deaths of several American agents who oh, were fuck. double agents over in Russia. Um, he exposed their cover, and they were executed. No over shit. In Russia. Yeah, so he was he was like directly responsible for it. Wasn't just documents. He was All responsible right. for the deaths of American I didn't know that. people. Over there, um, yeah, and just fifteen put, life sentences put us all in in jeopardy in, in terms of like uh, now the Russians know for sure that we have Americans over there as spies, you know. Yeah, I mean, just blew the whole thing up. Yeah, we have movies and shit now, you know. But I mean, cold hard proof, like damn, yeah, he really fucked us over. That's crazy, but he's dead. My last story, yes, he's dead now. <clears throat> uh, my last story, uh, which is a big story. Donald Trump is facing seven federal charges relating to the mishandling of classified information. If all of these charges were um, deemed a conviction, he could face up to 100 years behind bars. Now, I just, on a personal note, would like to say that, and I'm a little bit heavy into conspiracies from time to time. I think this is a big political move, bro. I'm just going to come out and I say agree. it right now. I just, I think this is just to take him out of the race because some party is concerned that he might garner enough support the second time around to become president again. He's too much of a radical. He's too much of, and by that I mean he doesn't play the game. No, he shakes things and, up. And he shakes things up. He's unpredictable. Nobody knows what he's going to do. Nobody's got him in their pocket. And so I feel as like. As far as the, we know. As far as we know. Um, and so I just feel like this is a move from down in the depths of world makers and world shakers to just keep him out of the presidential race. Yeah. And watch no, I mean, watch after the election is finalized, this will all go away. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, the the Democrats have had a target on him since day one, man. Oh, they absolutely. They have been nonstop persecuting this guy, trying to take him out of the picture for years now. And it's just getting, it's escalating to the point of this because he's still running for president. He's still somewhat popular, and then this comes out. But then, like, all those documents they just found, 
in his fucking Mar-a-Lago estate. I mean, that's pretty, pretty damning. It's but what are these documents? How do we know what these documents are? It, you know, it's damning in, in in some ways, but on the other hand, there's also uh, boxes that Joe Biden's group has all over exactly. the place. I mean, like all of these people have, you know, just random ass boxes of stuff that could be considered classified. So why are his you know, so damning and other people's aren't. It's just one of those things where it seems very clearly targeted. I mean, they, they haven't let up since his presidency. I mean, these charges Never. started coming in while he was still president. Never let up, man. They're just going hard at him. But it's a good point you make about uh, Biden because, yeah, his whole administration is filled with fucking bullshit and nobody's focusing exactly. on that. And exactly. he's in office. And and they won't. He's the president and no one's no, focusing on that. They'll throw a a story randomly here and there just to make it seem bipartisan, but it's there's nothing that's going to come of it. So, so that's just my third story. It's not really a story, but you know, it's big uh, national news. Oh, it's huge. And you know, we don't want to get too political here on the podcast, but nah. it'll just be interesting to see the timeline of how this all shakes out. So, yeah, we'll see whose prediction is correct. I think I, for one, think it's a big conspiracy. So we'll, we'll see. 100%. We'll see what happens, won't we? And there's a narrative here being chummed up and we'll see how it all plays out. But, uh, come next year, there'll be another election, right? Right, right. And we'll see how that plays out. But I'm pretty sure this whole thing will just be swept under the rug as soon as the next big event comes up to take our minds off of what's really important. Well, that's all for our Trey Portray segment. I guess we should move on with the story then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, without any further hesitation... Let's put our thinking caps on, and I do want to ask that everyone try their best to play the devil's advocate here, as in, try to really see this from both sides of the fence as we go through it. Absolutely. Put yourself in these people's shoes. You gotta you gotta live both lives, you gotta talk both talks to like really get a full picture of what's going on here. But also, be critical and ask questions at the same time, especially you, Scott. Oh, I will not hesitate one iota. Let's do our thing and bend forward at the waist, as we usually do, extend our arms backward, and let's run head first into the mystery that is, or was, the beautiful Cindy James. Oh, that's poetic imagery <laughs> you got there, Coop. It's all about the imagery. <laughs> Cindy James was born as Cynthia Elizabeth Hack on June 12, 1944, in Oliver, British Columbia, in the great white north Canada. Her mother was Matilda, nicknamed Tilly, and she was your typical homemaker of the times. And her father, Otto Hack, was a former colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force and worked as an English teacher. Both were of Russian descent. Cindy had three older brothers and two younger sisters. The family spent quite a bit of time in Ottawa, and that is where Cindy attended high school. Because of the military life, the family would be moved from one base to the next, never giving any of the children a chance to develop strong and lasting relationships. Sadly, both Otto and Tilly would also discourage the children from even trying to make friends due to the inevitability of them having to move again. Ooh, man. Yeah, shit. To be fair, that is tough. Yeah, that's a really tough environment. And I, the people I know who have been moved around a lot like that struggle to this day to make and keep friends. So it's, it's a real thing, guys. It's yep. a real thing. And by most accounts, Otto was a pretty strict father, which would make sense considering his many years in the Air Force, while her mother was luckily on the other end of the spectrum and was rather loving. In her own diaries that she kept, Cindy would write about how strict her father was on not only her, but her siblings as well. She would write that her childhood lacked the compassion and involvement that children desire from their parents, especially from her father. Cindy would also write about abuse in the form of corporal punishment, 
at the hand of her military mindset father. Damn, this is back in the day, man. The laying on of hands. Laying on of hands. I mean, shit, I got smacked around when I was a kid, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, I was me acting too. out, being a little bastard. Yeah, I'd get the yep. hand. Boom! Get the belt. Yes, sir. Never out of nowhere. Nah. Never, like, no. unprovoked or anything. It was never like, happy Wednesday. Oh, God, what are you doing? No, I was, I was a little shit. Yeah. So this sort of relationship with her father drained Cindy, and she became a little resentful of him. She couldn't wait to move out of the house, but she was still in high school. Soon, though, she would graduate, and she had her eyes set on attending university to become a nurse. We love our nurses, don't we, Scott? Yeah, we sure do, so long as they're not trying to kill us. But really quick, I have a joke. Why did uh, the nurse need a red crayon? I don't fucking know. She needed to draw blood. <laughs> oh. All right. All right, so. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. I got one more. What is it called when a hospital runs out of maternity nurses? <laughs> I have no idea, man. A midwife crisis. Hey. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yo, you know what? Man. I'll give you that one. A midwife yeah. crisis. I like it. That's pretty good. Everybody yeah. sit back in your seats and drink that one in, you guys. Well, you've yes. added one gold star to your collection, Scott. Oh, yeah. I like my stars. All right. Well, Cindy's father, Otto, he was totally against this idea of her becoming a nurse because in his mind, Cindy needed to be a woman, meaning she needed to follow her mother's footsteps and adopt the traditional role of being a living embodiment of a Susie homemaker. You know, I think they're called home economists now, or like a home engineer. Yeah, yeah, you are right. Also, the names of two competing magazines. <laughs> but you know what? Fun fact, the largest Susie homemaker oven is 17 inches tall, or about 43 centimeters, or nearly half a meter, not quite, but almost, and 12 inches wide, or about 30 centimeters, or about 0.3 meters, and 10 inches deep, or nearly 25 centimeters, or a quarter of a meter. I mean, that's huge, man. That's You could fit like... Isn't that the basic size of a typical microwave oven? Yeah, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point. A few pairs of penny loafers, maybe a bowling ball, that might fit. Could possibly fit two sets of croquet balls in there. A couple of tortoises, if you set them like one on top of another... Um, an elephant's tusk, if you had like just the tip, like just a little bit of it. Um, definitely a gorilla toenail, like a collection of them. Like I'm thinking maybe 20 or so. You could probably fit those in there too. Easily. Um, yeah, I have a ball of dung and spit that was <laughs> rolled up by a dung beetle. I could fit mm. a couple of those in there. Tell you right now. Um, a couple of Titleist golf balls would probably fit in there. Like I'm guessing maybe 15 or so. Um, yeah, a whole bunch of gum, gumball. Anyways, uh, yeah. Cindy was finally out of the house and attending college in Vancouver, Canada to become a nurse in 1962 and royally pissing off her father. Her father, being an ex-Royal Canadian Air Force with a spotless record, decided that he would re-enlist in the RCAF. Is that, is he, did he act out? Was that his form of acting out? <laughs> I think so. I think he just didn't know what to do with himself anymore, only being an English teacher and all. No fun or structure in that at all. Yeah, and every time he was like trying to show the class a book, he'd just be like, all right, I'll drop it, give me yeah. 20. <laughs> just out of nowhere. It's all military. Sorry, I meant page 20. Page 20, guys. Page 20. So while Cindy was off furthering her education, Otto would pack up the family and move on over to France where the Air Force needed him. Cindy was saddened by the news, but was also kind of relieved about the distance between them. It was agreed that she would visit the rest of the family over the holidays, but would certainly correspond regularly with them through the mail. <laughs> what? What is mail? <laughs> it's 
true. Not many people know what that is anymore. No. So according to author Ian Milgrew, who's a really fine author, in his 1991 book, Who Killed Cindy James, which, by the way, there is a listing on Amazon for that book, which fetches $1,599.96. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's the one we're using for today's episode. <laughs> and according, according to Ian Milgrew, it was during this period of time that Cindy, through writing letters to her family, would mention a man that she met at the university. This man went unnamed, but he was said to be an intern in an unnamed department. She said that the two had hit it off quite well and had even gone engaged. Oh, man, this is all happening a little bit suddenly, I feel like. Seems like. But then the man was diagnosed with a form of terminal cancer. Trying to make the best of the time the man had left, the couple went on a skiing trip. It was on this skiing trip that the man would commit suicide, and I'm unsure of the manner of death. He didn't purposely bono it, did he? That would be a horrible way to go. Wait, what? Too early? That was like 25 years ago, man. Don't look at me like that, man. Come on, man. <laughs> the old so, death by tree, bro. Yeah, I, I bet he bent at the hips, put his arms backward, and just went head first <laughs> into the trees. Oh, don't we all? So all of that would have happened in a short period of time. Cindy enrolled in college in 1962. She would have met this man and liked him so much that they got engaged. Then he would die during a ski trip by suicide after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And here's why I say this, because in the summer of 1965, Cindy would meet another man, a man named Roy Makepeace. That's better than her ex, John Love War. Huh? You know? John Love War. Yeah, sorry, bro. That was terrible. Oh, man. We can edit that out, right? <laughs> she would get married with Roy Makepeace on December 9th, 1966. It's so soon, right after this other guy she was engaged to and was about to get married to just committed suicide, and then she's already just hops on the wagon yeah. and marries this guy. Seems seems a little desperate. Yeah. She's like, well, I still got the ring, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Cindy would also graduate from nursing school that same year with a bachelor's of science in nursing. Of course, her parents weren't too thrilled about this marriage when they learned about the age difference between the two. Cindy would be around 21 years old at the time, while Roy was around 40, give or take. It's said that there was an 18-year difference in age, and this shocked Cindy's parents. Yeah, that is a little bit shocking. It's a big uh, difference in age there. That's a gap right there, yeah. They said that Roy had taken advantage of their daughter's soft demeanor and gullibility. I doubt that. I feel like she probably just has major dad issues because she never felt what that was like to feel. So, I mean... Otto can just blame himself there on that one. That's what happens, man. That's what happens. And despite all of their objections to the marriage and having a relationship at all, Cindy would stand by Roy Makepeace. So, who was Roy Makepeace? Yeah, I think we ought to know. Roy was a psychiatrist from South Africa, where he was born and raised. He became a licensed psychiatrist in South Africa, and at some point moved to Vancouver, Canada, where he attempted to get his license to practice there, but failed twice. After that second failure, he took the position of assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. That's still a very respectable position. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd take it in a heartbeat. For sure. That is about all that can be said about who Roy Makepeace was. There is a lot of speculation as to what he was involved in, but we'll get to that a little later. So upon graduating the nursing program and marrying Roy Makepeace in 1966, Cindy started to work as a pediatric nurse at the Vancouver General Hospital. Roy himself would be employed at the same hospital between 1966 until 1973. In 1973, Roy would leave his position at that hospital and take on the role of the Director of Health Services at the British Columbia Hydro and Power Authority, or BC Hydro which generates and provides electricity to most of British Columbia still to this day. 
And I wonder why he left his psychiatric position in 1973 to take on the role of director of health services at a hydro and power plant. Yeah, seriously, it seems like a just a 180 from what he was doing before. Yeah. And in 1975, Cindy would start a job as a team coordinator at the Vancouver Blenheim House, which cared for children with behavioral disorders. This is no longer such a center. It's like a horse ranch or some shit now. And from what I'm aware of, these types of businesses were ran all over the world during this time. They were very popular. And we mentioned the troubled teen industry in one of our previous episodes, and we will cover that topic one day. But do you know what else was very popular at the time, Scott, in 1975? Uh, um, saunas? <laughs> yeah, saunas are good. But the study of psychology and psychiatry. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> With a wide range of human experiments, including which experimental drugs did what, as well as lobotomies and other psychological tortures, but always with a scientific approach to figure out, you know, mind control. The Russians were doing it, the British were doing it, the U.S. was always doing it. Shit, everyone with a budget was doing it. So the CIA and its many black tentacles with degrees of separation, you know, the right hand never knowing what the left hand is doing, as the left never knows what the right is doing. They all had their secret programs going on, as they do today. And some of these programs dealt specifically with children, as they do today. But the experiments done in these programs would take up numerous episodes to cover, so one at a time. Can I just mention these 85,000 lost migrant children taken in by U.S. government really quick? What the fuck is going on, man? Okay, so today's June 11th, 2023, right? Yep. Yeah, so this is sort of old news, but it's always going to be relevant until we get some answers. The missing 85,000 children started coming out in the news cycle on, like, I want to say April 18th or so of this year. And actually, House.gov has posted an article about it. So apparently the government can't answer for all of those children that have come into the hands of the government. And NPR cited that many of these children are being forced into child labor, too. They said that the 85,000 were lost within the first two years of Biden in office. And the Democrats are obviously toting Biden for his hard work. Oh, yeah. And literally blamed Trump for how the children were allegedly being treated under his administration. That mushy guy with the weird skin who's completely lost mentally, Biden, well, he was questioned over it. I think it was like April 28th. But, of course, he said nothing meaningful during that time. Never does. I mean, just recently reports came out about these children around, like, seven, eight, nine years old in hotels that the government are putting them in. Just children. No adults around. No parents around. No authority figures. No guardians. These kids are just, like, reportedly drunk and passing out, you know? Yeah, dude, exactly. Where are these migrant children? Who, by the way, are mostly from Mayan-speaking areas, and so they have no idea how to communicate. Some, you know, can only speak Spanish, but dude, did you watch that hearing with the Health and Human Services whistleblower who gave testimony in front of Congress recently, just like probably a few weeks back? Um, I, I mean, I knew that was happening, but no. So there's recently a Health and Human Services whistleblower, a Miss Rodas, who testified to Congress on April 27th of this year, 2023, and she says that she knows what is happening to those children. And she says that the U.S. government is acting as a middleman in a multi-billion dollar human trafficking operation targeting... Just the unaccompanied children at the border. And they are also separating children from the parents. And we already know that this was happening because it's been covered by the lamestream news for a handful of years already. But here is a quote of Miss Rodas. I thought I was going to help place children in loving homes. Instead, I discovered that children are being trafficked through a sophisticated network that begins with being recruited in home country, smuggled to the U.S. border, and ends when ORR delivers a child to a sponsor, which 
Some sponsors are criminals and traffickers and members of transnational criminal organizations. I mean, this shit's insane, man. Right in front of our faces and nothing substantial ever comes of these things. Oh, and in that video, which you can easily find online, just search for Miss Rodas Testifies at Congress. Um, in that video, there are a number of people behind her facing the same way um, towards the cameras, which are facing, you know, Miss Rodas. But one of these women in the back has the shit-eating grin on her face and giggles as Miss Rodas testifies. And that woman was not alone in doing that. People are clearly laughing as she speaks. Yeah, I'm looking at this article here, and it's it says that the HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra told lawmakers that he was, quote, unfamiliar with reported statistics that the agency had been unable to make contact with over 85,000 unaccompanied child migrants who had been released to sponsors after being encountered at the southern border. What a crock of shit, dude. Well, I don't know where they're going. Dude, you're in charge of this shit. What are you talking about? You don't know what the fuck is going on. And, you know, there's some shit going down within the U.S. government, some real shady shit, and I recommend people really start looking into this. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way that, you know, we're going to get more light on this. And I'm reading here that this was written a week ago on, like, May 31st, that a data leak shows that the U.S. is bracing for 161,000 unaccompanied children to flood in. And where are they going to go? Who's going to proctor it? Who's going to supervise this? I mean, let me just point to what Miss Rodas is trying to bring attention to and also other historical events directly tied to the U.S. government in the past. The Franklin cover-up over in Nebraska in the late 1980s and 1990s. Huge one. North Fox Island, Epstein's Island. I mean, aside from those, there were also the Fells Acres Day School in Malden, Massachusetts. There's the Country Walk, Florida. We Care Nursery School, McMartin Preschool. I mean, dude, we don't even know. Like, these are just the ones that were exposed, right? So where are these children going? Yeah, man. And the North Fox Island, that whole thing ties us right back into child behavior. So a couple of guys started a sort of school for troubled teens, or troubled children for that matter, and they didn't even have the credentials or training to do it. But those things didn't matter much then, and they don't really matter all that much today, but they'd only take six at a time, always boys. Yeah, pretty much what you'd imagine happened did in fact happen on North Fox Island, and authorities did get involved. And there was thought to be a link between North Fox Island and the alleged Oakland County child killer, who was active around those years and never got caught, as far as the public knows, but we will cover all of that another time. But yeah, um, Roy Makepeace, he was said to have very close ties to a certain James Tyhurst. Now, who was James Tyhurst? I think we ought to know that as well. I think you ought. Other than being pretty much scrubbed from the internet, James Tyhurst was also a psychiatrist. He reportedly trained under another man who should never be forgotten or forgiven for what he did to countless human beings, even though it was government-sanctioned. This man was the brains behind the CIA's human experimentation on psychiatric patients, Dr. Ewan Cameron. Dr. Ewan Cameron was working on the MK Ultra experiments at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, Quebec before moving the program to the University of British Columbia, or UBC for short. These experiments were used throughout the MKUltra shit and are certainly still being implemented under government programs all over the world today. There is no doubt in my mind. Yeah, man, I remember growing up like hearing rumors or like seeing shows where people were exposing like all these things that went on. And I remember as a kid, I was like, oh, that can't be true. And I was an adult. And I'm like, oh, they totally hardcore experimented on people, bro. And just like, just to see, dude, just to see what would happen. You know what I mean? So fucking crazy. So James Tyhurst was the head of the psychiatry department at the UBC when Roy came around. 
This is where Roy Makepeace would spend his working hours, and it's said that the two became good friends. James also had his own house on Gabriola Island, which is one of the many islands off the shores of British Columbia. Islands, there's always an island, and I can only imagine what was going on. There usually is an island involved. Now, numerous books have been written about Dr. James Tyhurst and his connections to Dr. Ewan Cameron and the government programs designed for the implementation of human experimentation and torture, such as Project Artichoke and, of course, MKUltra. Some of these experiments that James was directly responsible for was taking an average person with no history of mental health issues, just regular people without any diagnosis, and he and his team would see if they could create either a short-term or long-term psychosis in these people. Now, a part of these experiments were to use the effects of a crisis on the minds of the test subjects. Therefore, they'd be subjected to various means of torture, both psychological and physical, and a combination thereof, you know, just to see what the effects would be on the mind. So in 1975, Cindy started to work as a team coordinator at the Vancouver Blenheim House, which cared for children with behavioral disorders. Roy became head of the social psychiatry department at this time where he worked closely with James Tyhurst. Then Roy would leave his position at UBC and would take the job at BC Hydro. For 12 years, Cindy would work at the Blenheim House and was said by her co-workers and colleagues that she showed nothing but compassion and professionalism with the children. It was no secret, Cindy loved children. She cherished them wholeheartedly, by all accounts. But here's an interesting little tidbit. Roy and Cindy's marriage certificate specifically stated that their marriage will result in no children, something that James was adamant about, which is really weird for a woman who adored children. Whoa, I have never heard of such a thing. That is, that is so crazy, dude. And it is said that Cindy and Roy would visit Dr. James Tyhurst at his home on Gabriola Island from time to time. It seems that Roy and James were better friends than most like to speculate. Mm, interesting, interesting. And as time grinded on, Cindy and Roy's relationship became strained as they often do. Her family would later tell authorities that the couple would often exhibit clear emotional distance from one another. And while Cindy's family members were unclear about any physical violence within the relationship, Cindy herself would later claim that Roy had become violent with her during their marriage. Of this, later on, Roy would admit that he, quote, only slapped her twice, end quote, <laughs> during their entire marriage, which lasted around 16 years, give or take a year or some months or whatever. In July of 1982, Cindy and Roy would separate, not divorce. They just separate and take time apart from one another. This isn't to say that they avoided each other. Quite the contrary. The two would often meet, and it was even during this time that Cindy would accompany Roy on visits to his friend's home on Gabriola Island, where there would be other friends, all of whom were psychiatrists. Oh, kind of weird. That'd be a fun party. Anytime you say anything, someone's like, oh, you know what that <laughs> yeah. sounds like? That sounds like uh, first stage dementia on the way. Just <laughs> just imagine this whole group of psychiatrists just studying each other. Like, hmm. <laughs> everyone's just listening to what each other are saying. They're just judging each other. Like, Yeah, right. Just formulating. Yeah. Like this is what. <laughs> yeah. Secretly diagnosing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure Larry's got uh, psychosis. But it would be after one such trip to this island that caused Cindy to put an end to seeing Roy altogether. Ooh, trouble on Love Island. I don't know if it's much of a Love Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are a couple of different accounts of what Cindy is alleged to have seen while at Gabriola Island. Either she saw Roy and James torturing and sexually abusing helpless women and saw them throw a body over a boat, or she saw them dismembering two bodies inside of a cabin and then tossing their remains into the icy cold water surrounding the island. Either way, it's generally understood that Cindy did see something on that island 
that was so terrible that she distanced herself further from Roy Makepeace. Here's a bit of a doozer for the listeners and for you, Scott. This comes from CASAC.ca, which is the Canadian Association of Sexual Assault Centers. And I'll read it verbatim. Actually, Scott, will you do the honors? Yeah, sure. In 1989, four women came forward to the Vancouver RCMP and Vancouver Crown to report attacks on them by their psychiatrist, Dr. James Tyhurst. They described that over a period of 20 years, he conducted treatment on all of them that included signed contracts to participate in, quote, master-slash-slave therapy. He required the women to undress and remain partially or completely naked throughout the therapy sessions. He escalated to sexual assaults, including rape and physical assaults, including the use of sadomasochistic paraphernalia, such as whips and jewelry. These attacks occurred in his office, his home office, his home on Gabriola Island, and in the homes of the women. So James was sentenced to four years, and he appealed, and guess what? It was granted. The Crown then appealed to the Court of Appeals to have the appeal appealed, and guess what? It was denied, meaning he served no time. Ugh, man, that is scary, especially when you look back, you know, just like this mist and miscarriage of, of course justice i mean it's nothing new but it's still just like it's just people that got ignored you know but scott one of the victims jill gorman went on to file civil charges against james and the court ruled in her favor and ordered him to pay her about five hundred and fifty seven thousand dollars in damages back in 2001 multiple times each month for four years jill would act as a slave for james this involved him whipping her naked back and having her bow down to him and kiss his hands and feet, among many other things. So that's something to look into. Old Gabriel Island and top psychiatrist Dr. James Tyhurst and his connections with secret government programs and or child sex rings that so often take place on islands with the rich and powerful under the protection of said government up until the point that it becomes too big to cover up and they have their fall guys who take the hit and shut up or be suicided in order to protect the people higher up who have more money. But one has to ask, you know, like, why does the government, that is when something like this finally, you know, gets into public view, why does the government only investigate so far into these allegations, man? It's as if they're hurried to just, like, get a conviction and wrap it all up, sweep it under the crib, so to speak, Oh, whew, and hope that it's, like, forgotten, you know what I mean? Like, why do they just stop at one or two people and then put the responsibility solely on them as if they're intelligent enough just to be alone and running this and operating this multi-town, multi-county, multi-state, multinational ring? It can't ever be just two people. That's impossible. There's like a there's a network there, but they always just stop short of investigating. They're like, ah, we'll put it on these two people and. And then you just never see the bigger picture. Yeah, case closed. Exactly, man. It's like these rings are far more complex and reach far beyond one little island with one or two people. And by the very nature of their complexity, they need to involve a network of powerful people with positions of political power and social influence. I mean, just look at any number of them, and you already said a handful. Yeah, right. You know, like Jeff Epp. I mean, Jeff Epp. Jeff Epp. Ghislaine Maxwell. Still somewhat fresh in the public's mind. Everybody knows who those people are. North Fox Island and the Franklin cover-up. 
those just being a few of the larger ones, but you got to have people that you pay to turn a blind eye. You have to have people that you pay to get you out of trouble if there ever is trouble, and you have to have people that you pay to get rid of problem people that are going to blow you up. It's just the it's the only way something like that can go on and continue. Oh, and then blackmail, of course. Gotta have the blackmail. There's always blackmail to silence people who were there, and then they had regrets, and then, I mean, you got to blackmail people, right? So, I mean, there's there's no way it's just... Two people. Yeah. Ever. No way in hell. Ever. Have you have you seen Jeffrey Epstein or Jeff Epps' black book, his secret back black book with all his contacts? I no, I never I never Woo. looked into it because once I heard that once the story broke, I was like, Psh, yeah, of oh course. My you know what I mean? God. It's just not not a surprise like, to me at all. So many contacts in it. I was looking through it, I was like, Holy shit, Crazy. bro. Crazy. Anyway, back to the story. At some point after that trip, probably around the time she was really pushing for a divorce, she would tell police that she knew Roy had murdered someone. Unfortunately, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police did not believe her one bit about that accusation, nor would they believe her when she would file complaint after complaint of being stalked, harassed, threatened, and assaulted. Over 90 incidents spanning over nearly a seven-year period. Ooh, man. So much there. So much evidence there. And they're just like, yeah, uh, I don't really know about all that. There would be home invasions, vandalism, arson, intimidation, everything. Whoever was doing this to her covered all their bases, and they were exceptionally adept at avoiding police detection. Well, of course. I mean, obviously they had to be, or they, you know, the whole thing would have come crashing down. Okay, so now that we have set the scene, we've gone over some important aspects about the people involved in this, but it's not so straightforward as one may imagine. Now, at this point, we'll dive into the actual incidents that Cindy James would report to the police, to family, and to her friends. It all started to happen in September of 1982, about four months after the separation. Cindy had been noticing a man prowling around her house, usually at night. Then, about a month later, on October 7th, 1982, obscene phone calls would begin. These phone calls would ring out, and she would answer them, and as one would suspect, whoever was making these calls would either stay silent, make grunts and moans, say sexual things, or be violent and threatening towards Cindy. On October 11th, Cindy would get one such call. The person on the other end would just breathe loudly. Then, the next day, she'd get another call. This time, the person said in a whisper, Wow. Whoa. Specific taste. Cindy would report these calls to the RCMP, who did make a visit to her home to check things out. They also suggested keeping a list of each call and what was said or what was heard. They also suggested getting a new phone number, one that was unlisted. And after the RCMP left her house, she would get another call. In this call, a distinctly male voice told her, You fucking bitch. I'll get you. Clumsy asshole. Yeah, damn, he really messed himself up right there. Wow, I can't believe they got that on the uh, on the recording. On October 13th, the following day, Cindy would get another call. This time, the caller said, So you think calling the police will keep you safe? You wait, I've got my zipper open. I'm talking to my throbbing. Before the man could finish, Cindy hung up the call and documented it as the police suggested. But the caller continued anyway. Man, it hurts. I might have to go to the emergency room. 
Damn, that's serious. Yeah, go get that checked out. Two days later, Cindy would hear sounds outside her house in the early morning and would go outside to investigate. All she found was that her porch lights had been smashed. Apparently, later the same day, October 15th, she would report to the police that someone had thrown a rock through one of her windows and then entered into her house. She said nothing had been taken. Where she was when this happened, I do not know, but I'd like to. Yeah, like, where, where is she? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't even know what Maybe to say there. In the bathroom, busy taking a deuce since she heard yeah, it happen, like, and right or she I couldn't mean, get maybe up. Frozen in fear. I mean, just like didn't yeah. Downstairs yeah. doing laundry. Who knows? Who knows? Then on the nineteenth, she again reported to the police, but this time someone had entered her house and slashed at least one of her pillows on her bed while she was not home. Hmm. Interesting. It was said at this point that Constable Patrick McBride, remember this name, with the Vancouver RCMP would be vocal and point the finger at Roy Makepeace as being the culprit. Roy, of course, denied any and all involvement. Cindy herself would give statements to the police, which made it seem like she was holding things back. And although she would tell her friends and family members that Roy had been abusive throughout their relationship, things she would also tell the police, she'd also said that she didn't think Roy would be doing these things to her. Uh, that's kind of an odd thing to say, but I mean, so you go and accuse this guy of murder, right? Say that you you know for a fact that he's murdered two people, and then you're like, well, <laughs> I don't think you would do this to me, though. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know. People people get delusional, but... While yeah, going I, through a divorce, a separation. Yeah, while going through... Yeah, yeah seriously. He might ah. kill someone, but I don't think he would harass me. He definitely killed someone, but he wouldn't kill me. So according to Neil Hall in his work, The Death of Cindy James, the next day, the 20th of October, two tenants would begin renting the basement floor of Cindy's house. Having an idea of the happenings going on, these tenants would report to Patrick McBride that they heard noises upstairs when Cindy should have been gone for work. Ooh, creepy. As the plot thickens, man. There was also a next-door neighbor who told McBride that she had, that she had actually seen an unidentifiable man who would just stand outside Cindy's house on at least three occasions. On one of those occasions, the man entered the front gate and just stood in the yard. The neighbor would be adamant that the man did not resemble Roy Makepeace at all. Oh, okay. Interesting, huh? Yeah, eyewitness account. Interesting. Patrick McBride has pretty much taken it upon himself to watch over Cindy's house and provide his own surveillance because the RCMP just weren't really doing their job. So Cindy was much obliged to that and thought that it was a good idea. They also thought it was a good idea for Patrick to move into Cindy's house and stay in a spare bedroom on the main floor. He would move in on October 31st, 1982. Wait, 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 wait. All this shit started happening 20 days previously, and then all of a sudden this cop, this constable, he just up and moves in with Cindy? He's like, yeah, I'm going to move in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, man. And Patrick was also recently separated or divorced from his wife. Hmm. Yeah, so no one was sensing a uh, possible conflict of interest in Canada at the time, just to have a cop in his official capacity move in with the possible victim of harassment. Strange, huh? It's I don't think that would fly. The, no, uh, no, people would be like, "What are you doing?" Like, no, we can't do that. The idea was for Patrick to move in temporarily for about two weeks and just help keep an eye on what was you know going on and hopefully catch this stranger who was harassing her. And only a handful of days after moving in, Patrick would be doing his rounds and checking shit out in the neighborhood, and he would come upon Roy Makepeace sitting in his car in the alley behind Cindy's house. Oh, man, at the scene. When Patrick confronted Roy, 
Roy simply said that he was also doing his own surveillance and just trying to do his part in protecting his estranged wife. Patrick apparently told him that he, Patrick, had moved in with Cindy, and that is when Roy decided to drive away. Oh, jeez. <laughs> just uh, let it slip. You know, like, oh, well, by the way, I live there now. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. Yeesh, yeah, that's not smart. But anyways, yeah, way to show your cards, you know what I mean? Yeah. A couple of articles. Still, how did, uh, oh, uh, I'm just curious, how did how did Roy know what was going on? Well, because they were still talking. Okay. Roy and Cindy were still talking together. They, okay. were, still, they were still hanging out. Ah, but... okay. So he knew. I was like, whoa, uh, how does he know that the house needs to be surveilled? You know what I mean? That would be a little bit suspect if you ask me. But No. Yeah, no, he fully knew what was happening with I Cindy. see, I see. I got you, I got you. But a couple of articles said that Roy had a couple of guns with him in his car when old Pat found him in the alley. So yes, within 20 days of the harassment beginning, Patrick McBride would move into Cindy's house with her. But that isn't all. They also began a romantic relationship. It's unclear when exactly that relationship started, but it's said that it began in late October. And remember, Cindy and Roy separated only the month prior. Yeah, this is, uh, it's just, it can't end well. You know, you've got all these different lines, like, converging, like, running together. The personal, the legal... The unidentified attacker, I mean, it's the scene is set. It sounds like the beginning of a horror movie, you know, where everybody dies in the end. Just like one of those. Just a fucking horrible sci-fi slasher film. Yeah, totally. This relationship is reported to have lasted about one year. But even beyond the end of that one-year relationship and living with Cindy in her house, the two would continue to see each other over the years, according to Ian Mulgrew. Ian says that the two would frequently have dinners together in Vancouver and in Bellingham, Washington in the United States. All right, so all that is just weird to me, that time frame. Patrick just broke up with his wife, too. Roy and Cindy broke up about one month before. Patrick moves in. Roy is found sitting in his car in the alley behind her house. I mean, that's just weird right off the bat, you know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely do. And so things, you know, just sort of cool off after Patrick moves in. That is until mid-November, the following month. Patrick said that on this particular day, while he was there in the house with Cindy present, he would answer one of those phone calls. The person on the other end said nothing, but he knew someone was on the line because he could hear the background noise. Patrick thought the call may have come from an airport terminal because he could hear a woman's voice over an intercom. In her work, The Strange Death of Cindy James, Holly Horwood would say that the phone call was eventually traced to a money exchange center in Richmond, a suburb of Vancouver. And according to Ian Mulgrew, just days after that phone call, Cindy would find a note attached to her car windshield. It said that this note was a photograph of a dead body lying under a sheet. Then, on November 28th, Patrick would find that the phone lines in the house had been cut in five different places. But still, they had nothing to indicate who this person was or possibly who these people were. Oh man, it's getting spookier and spookier. And as things continued, Christmas of 1982 would approach. And on that day, you know, one typically of warmth and happiness, Cindy would find a note outside of her house, possibly on her car, which read, Merry Christmas. This note was stained with red ink and was also a photo of a woman with her throat slashed. Definitely, things are getting, things are getting scary. I mean, it, all the, if all these things are true and all these things were found... Uh, how this? How could Cindy not like already have some deep like mental illness brewing? You know, yeah, I mean that'd be only scary. Gets worse. That'd be scary. Yeah, and right around this point in time, Cindy decided that since the letters and harassment were continuing despite Pat living there with her, 
that it was time for Pat to move out. And he did. He moved out, but he kept the key with him. Oh. That's, so that's interesting to know. Remember that. It's going to end well. Yeah, okay. And of course, the harassment continued. And really quick, I just want to speculate on this. The tenants downstairs said that they heard someone upstairs when Cindy was gone. Now, Patrick had a key. Roy had a key. On top of that, it wasn't difficult to make copies of keys. But I just wanted to remind everyone of that. But now, it is the great year of 1983. Wonderful year. Really incredible year. Crack became a thing in the States. Thanks, government. You remember how much a stamp cost? 20 cents. Oh, man. Outlandishly great year to be alive. And so with police officer Pat McBride out of the house now, and Cindy's estranged husband, who she separated from, out there doing whatever it is that he's doing. Well, whatever it was, we at least know that he still cared for her. He was out there patrolling the streets in his downtime, just ensuring that Cindy was safe, you know? Yeah, I don't know about that. I find that little scenario with him being seen in the alley behind her house by Pat as just a little suspect. Yeah, ab- absolutely, dude. And he definitely didn't keep her safe either. In the late evening on the 27th of January, 1983, her good friend and co-worker at the Blenheim house, Agnes Woodcock, would make a visit to Cindy's house. She would knock on the front door but would not receive an answer. At first, Agnes said she assumed Cindy was just having her nightly bath. But then, she said she heard something from inside. She would go around the house to check the back door and see if she could spot anything. And once she made it to the backyard, Agnes would discover Cindy lying in the grass, unconscious, and with a black nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. When Cindy came to, Agnes asked her if she remembered anything about the attack, and Cindy said that she did. She said that she remembered going out to the unattached garage to grab a box. And that was when someone grabbed her from behind. She said that this person was a man who then brought her into the garage where there was another man waiting for them. Cindy said that the two men proceeded to strangle her. Oh, man. This is getting terrible. I picture this like two men together strangling one woman. Yeah. <laughs> four, four hands four around hands her neck. Four hands on her. Just one, yeah, just too many hands. That's weird. Cindy also said that these men then took a knife. I'm unsure of what kind, and inserted the blade into her vagina. While doing so, they threatened to kill her younger sister, Melanie, if she said anything about what had happened. And then, the next thing she knew, she was regaining consciousness in her backyard with a nylon stocking around her neck with small cuts on her arms and talking to Agnes. Ugh, knife in the vag. That's really well, fucked up. Well, yeah, things get a little weird here with their story. So, first of all, she claims these two men shoved a knife into her vagina. Now, either this knife was not sharp, or it was really small, or it wasn't a knife. Because the medical examiners who looked Cindy over said that there was no concrete evidence of a sexual assault. This is not to say that it didn't happen, because like I said, maybe it wasn't a knife, or maybe this object, whatever it was, was small enough to not cause any tears or damage internally during what I'd presume to be a bit of a struggle, given the circumstances. Scott, can you give us just a quick rundown on what you think is going on here? I'm confused. I I don't know. So you got this stalking, and then Cindy's reporting things, and then the phone lines are being cut, and she's getting attacked in her backyard, but not killed. You know, you'd think if someone, like, wanted her freaked out, or I, I don't even know what the motive is here at this point, unless it's just to cause, like, ill will and just to make her scared, but she's not threatening to turn anybody in. She's not about to testify before a huge court, you know, like there's, there's nothing going on. So like, what's the point, you know? 
So I don't know. I don't know what's going on here, man. Well, with detectives having some doubts about Cindy's allegations, they would ask her to take a polygraph test about the incident. Two of them. Apparently, she would fail both, and also admit that she did recognize one of the attackers, but she was reluctant to give up his identity due to the fear she had about the threat to her younger sister, if she said anything. She said she failed the tests because of the fear of the death threats. And according to Ian Mulgrew, in his previously mentioned book, the police would ask Cindy to see a psychiatrist, but she decided against it because she felt that it would stigmatize her. Oh, well, now to be fair, we only recently have moved into an era where people can openly talk about seeking mental help and then not being, like, ostracized for it. It was definitely a thing you just didn't tell people back then. You know, people were like, oh, I hear they're seeing a shrink, and everybody goes, ooh, Especially if it was a woman, too, back in the day. Especially if it was a woman, yeah. Everyone would just be like, oh, a crazy lady. Plus, for nearly the last 20 years of her life, all the people around her were psychiatrists, right, and psychologists and doctors and all those white coats. Fucking white coats. I mean, she was married to Roy Makepeace, a psychiatrist for 16 years, and all of his friends were psychs. They were also colleagues. I mean, that was her whole life. I'm sure it sucked many a sack to live with, you know? I mean, not even just to live with, but to be married to for 16 years. Every opinion you have, everything you share just gets psychoanalyzed. So I'm sure the idea of going to see a psychiatrist is not at the top of her list of things to do. Plus, Roy probably knew all of them anyway, so she's like, I'm just going to be talking to somebody that Roy knows. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting that despite their separation and eventual divorce... They'd still be cordial with each other, and it said that they'd go out occasionally when she wasn't going to Bellingham, Washington with Patrick McBride. Yeah, that's weird. I, that part, I, that's the part I don't get. Like, if it was so bad, the continued contact. She's alleging that he murdered someone, but they're still hanging out. Like, what? No fucking way. So it's even said by Mulgrew that while Patrick was living with NC and Cindy, Cindy would even invite Roy Makepeace over, and Roy would stop by, and both Patrick and he would bond over discussions of who was harassing Cindy. What? What the what the <laughs> fuck, right? Oh, man. I'm starting to think that that uh, like, little thing in the backyard was some uh, sort of autoerotic like, s- you know, sexual thing that happened, and then it just went a little too far, and her friend found her, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, man. I never thought about that, that angle with it. These two people are bonding, quote-unquote, bonding over who, you know, I, I don't know. After that crazy attack on January 27th, 1983, Cindy would move to a new house in West Vancouver. She would move in on February 1st. And just one week into living there, feeling like she was safe, she received another letter. This letter read, Run, rabbit, run. I'll show you how fucking good I am. Soon. Bang, bang, you're dead. And then I can play Pokemon Go. It's the best. Wow, I didn't realize Pokemon Go went back that far. uh, (laughs) Is it that old? Yeah, I guess it it was probably a board game at that time. Oh. Yeah. More phone calls and sexual perversions and threats of violence would come. More letters would be received. And there seemed to be no solution other than moving again. So Cindy would pick up and head to another house in April. Oh, well, I'm sure everything just stopped at that point then. Not exactly. But it's hard to frame all of this because it's said that Roy and Cindy are still trying to make the marriage work, and he was buying her all sorts of things and even bought her a plane ticket to Indonesia so she could visit her brother who was stationed there in the military. So Cindy moves to get away from this attacker of hers. She and her ex are trying to make things work. Presumably, Roy is aware of her new house, which he knew where she lived before. 
as well. So, I mean, that's, that's a good point. I don't know. But just a few weeks after returning from that trip, Cindy would find yet another note on August 22nd. This note read, Welcome back. Death, blood, hate, etc. And things and stuff. By the way, I found Mewtwo V-Star. It's super rare and super rad. <laughs> Dude, this guy is hip as fuck. <laughs> you know? That's like the best Pokemon Go. Knows what's going on. Oh, yeah. So this is when Cindy thought it would be a good time to repaint her car to a different color. Uh, not too sure if that's going to matter much when someone knows where you live. So, like, one day they're going to see a red car there, and then the next day they're going to see a blue car there. So, you It's know. the same model. Yeah, same model. Same <laughs> scratches. Uh, yeah. Same wheels, you know, they, same tire, same everything. They know your every move. Yeah, but I'm sure same that'll Same license work. plate. Yeah. The license plate. Right. I'm sure that'll work. You know. Oh, man. So maybe she's just getting super desperate or all the anxiety and stress is just taking a toll on her mental state and she's becoming a little irrational in her behavior. I'm just speculating, but that's possible. Yeah. I mean, obviously, things are degrading in all aspects of her life. I mean, we can clearly see that. Um, Speaking of speculation, you know what we don't need to speculate on? Where we're recording today. Well, the listeners want to know, I'm sure. Where are we recording today? We are recording live in an abandoned meth house. <laughs> well, it's more of an old rundown cabin, but was once in its heyday a thriving methtropolis. Methtropolis, it was indeed. Yes, it is on private property, and we do have permission to be here. Scott and I are strangers in this strange land, but the almighty Wayne Dale has his connections. He might have connections, but he's pretty short on brain cells. I'll fucking twist your head right off your shoulders, you fucking cantaloupe. <laughs> mm, I like cantaloupe. More of a melon guy, though. The only thing you can twist is any logical sentence spoken to you, Wayne. <laughs> Mr. Wayne Dale. Shut up, right? Shut up and get back to the fucking <laughs> show. Would you already got... Good goddamn holy shit. <laughs> All right, sheesh. Keep the spit in the mouth next time. Shut up. <laughs> Fuck, he's losing his marbles over there. We love you, Dale. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. And, Wayne, we're just trying to tell you we love you, bro. Just calm down. Shut the fuck up. Damn, bro. So bizarre. Always got his tits in a twist. Shut up. <laughs> so anyway, both Cindy and Patrick McBride thought it would be a good idea to hire a private investigator. Ozzy Caban. Oh, that sounds like a man who will get to the bottom of it. Cindy would pay Ozzy for his investigative services for six years. Now, here's a little thing about this. Ozzy is a friend of Patrick McBride's. Ozzy would later tell reporters that Cindy would go to very great lengths to hide her identity and protect herself. She wore one of those portable panic buttons. Remember from those uh, commercials back in the day? Help! I've fallen over the upstairs banister down two flights of stairs after tripping over a rabid squirrel that got into my house and savagely attacked me as I lay in agony in the shape of a pretzel on the shattered glass and marble armoire where once sat an invaluable fourth century Chinese pottery set. And in fact, the rabid squirrels, of which I count five, are currently feasting on my broken body, specifically in the beloved area of the taint and its surrounding equitable lands. And I cannot get up for the love of Cloacina, goddess of all that smells awful. Oh, Tevra, goddess of brooms, take vengeance on these spawn of Satan and sweep them into cockatus. 
Did I say help me? I can't get up. <laughs> oh, man. I wish that was the commercial that was always on. That would have sold a lot more of those devices. Shit, I would have bought one. And who the fuck is Cloachina? Goddess of all that smells awful. And Devra? Goddess of brooms. <laughs> yeah. They conveniently left those out uh, in school <laughs> when we were learning about history. So, yeah, I couldn't tell you. She would carry pepper spray with her everywhere she went. She constantly lived in fear, just waiting for the next attack, knowing that it would happen soon. And then, between the months of October and November of 1983, three separate cats would be found strangled to death in her garden, which damaged the garden. Or hanging in trees, whichever version you read. Each cat had been bound with rope that comes back into play later. And here's the funny part. Not the cats. There's nothing funny about that at all. But in her private diary, Cindy accused Roy of destroying the garden in her backyard, but not of killing the three cats. Ooh, that's a little hmm. weird. Yeah, okay. And here would start a whole new flurry of phone calls, both at home and at work. Some of her colleagues at the Blenheim house would answer some of these calls, and, and they'd say that the person on the other end never spoke. At home, she'd get the usual sexual and violent calls, as well as the threatening ones. Hmm. Okay. So she's saying that they are right, but then when the people would come around and pick up these calls, they would never hear anything. Interesting. And now Ozzy Caban would give Cindy a two-way radio, like little walkie-talkies to call him on at any moment if something was to go down. And if something went down, Ozzy would be there quicker than it takes to bake a frozen pizza. 20, 25 to 27 minutes at 450 or something like that? Yeah, yep, yep. And one day, strange noises were being heard through those two ways, which convinced Ozzy that something was happening to Cindy. He got to her house as fast as he could, and he found Cindy lying on the kitchen floor unconscious. Whoa, crazy. But that wasn't it. She had a paring knife stabbed right through her hand. Oh, ouch. But that wasn't it. There was a note that that knife was pinning to her hand. What? This is crazy. But that wasn't it. No? No. The note consisted of individual letters being cut out from magazines and pasted into sentences. A good old-fashioned ransom note. You don't see those often anymore. Oh, yeah, that's a lost art, man. The note read, Now you must die, cunt! Whoa, that's just not nice. I mean, none of this is nice, but that, specifically, really isn't nice. I think whoever wrote the note must have been in a hurry and forgot to finish it. He forgot tree music at the end of uh oh nice now you must die country music yeah, and yeah. he didn't know how to spell country <laughs> he just like couldn't remember part way through the word he spelled it how he knew it <laughs> <laughs> now cindy would be rushed to the hospital and told ozzy kaban that the last thing she remembered was seeing a guy come through the gate into her front yard and then he started hitting her in the head with a blunt object Cindy said that once she was incapacitated, the man took a hypodermic needle and jabbed her in the arm with it, and then he strolled off. The doctors who looked her over and did their assessment did find a needle mark, but there were no drugs in her system other than her own prescriptions. She was asked to take a polygraph test, and she agreed. This test showed no deception, but later, the polygraphist would later say that his results pointed toward being more inconclusive. Hmm. This is totally weird. In his article, Under Siege... Oh, I fucking love that film. Steven Seagal single-handedly takes out a group of musician terrorists, bro. Hot chick jumps out of a cake. One of the best films of all time, not to mention its sequel. If Seagal is in it, you know it's good. You know it. 
And he is considered to be the worst SNL host ever back in 1991. And get this, the next year they had Nicolas Cage on as a host, and he joked in his monologue that he was the worst host in SNL history. But Lauren Michaels, the creator of SNL, instantly yelled out, No, 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 that would be Steven Seagal. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's harsh, bro. Just called uh, him out. And the motherfucker broke Sean Connery's wrist while filming the James Bond film Never Say Never Again in 1983. Damn you, Chagall. I'd hit you, but that ponytail makes you look incredibly feminine, as well as those hips, and especially the way you run. Oh, as a matter of fact, the way you look at me. No, Seagal, no. Don't hold my face with your hand. No, they're, they're so small. So delicate, so soft. Tell me, Seagal, are you a man who likes to be shaken or a man who prefers to be stirred? <laughs> That's disgusting. Yeah. I'm just going to pretend that we never heard that. Let's just act like that never happened. It's kind of traumatizing. And you know that Seagal is a sheriff's deputy in New Mexico. Do you know that? There was even a, a groundbreaking TV show that he did. Real breathtaking work. But uh, he got in real tight with that total fucktard piece of shit and disgraced ex-Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arapio. <laughs> Arapio? I don't I don't know. Good goddamn holy shit. Arpeo? <laughs> Ex-Maricopa ex -Maricopa yeah. County Sheriff Joe Arpeo. And at one point, the two men thought it would be a really splendid idea to hop in a tank in 2011 and drive it right into a house that they suspected belonged to a man suspected of being part of a cockfighting ring. Well, what else are you going to do, I guess? Whether those accusations were real or not, they drove over the man's dog, killing it. This resulted in a $100,000 lawsuit, which was dismissed because the man failed to file the correct paperwork. Oh, got off on a technicality. Woo! Yeah, man. And, uh, get this, dude. Seagal also punched John Leguizamo in the chest for laughing at him when he said that he was in charge of the set of the film Executive Decision. Not nearly as good as Under Siege. Yeah, not at all. And one final fact, or alleged fact, about your man, Seagal. He once claimed he could not be choked out. So a friend of Bruce Lee, Gene Legel, one of the founders of MMA, challenged Seagal. Gene put him in a chokehold, and Seagal punched him near or in the groin, which was ineffective on Gene, and Seagal fell unconscious. Man, went for the old groin punch, and that didn't even work. Nope. And then Seagal shat himself, which happens. It shouldn't be embarrassing. You know, <laughs> I mean, it hasn't happened to me yet, but maybe it's coming, you know? All right, well, let's get back to Cindy James. Let's, let's. In his article, Under Siege, for the Vancouver Sun, Neil Hall wrote that Constable Kiyo Ikoma had arrived at Cindy's house after that attack by the two men to do some investigating. Neil said that Kyo Akoma had observed blood smears on the kitchen floor. The smears were circular, as if someone was trying to clean the blood off the floor. While the police as a whole thought she was full of shit, Ozzy Kaban, the private investigator, did not. The police didn't even do an investigation into the alleged attack. To them, it was clear she staged the entire thing. To Ozzy and Pat, the main suspect was her ex, Roy Makepeace. Cindy was convinced to end all contact with Roy because, as I mentioned earlier, the two were still cordial with each other and Roy was allegedly trying to make things work between them. But Cindy didn't seem very interested in that. In fact, she even started to think that it was Roy behind all of this harassment. Oh, really? Now she starts to think that. <laughs> it took a couple years. 
So by February of 1984, Roy was finally interrogated about all of the attacks for nearly six hours. He was absolutely shocked that the authorities would even consider him a suspect. He would tell the authorities that Sydney's attackers must have been connected to the mafia or some other organized crime group with ties to the Blenheim house. You know, that Cindy must have pissed off somehow. That's, whoa, that's quite a far-fetched storyline to be throwing out there. Wait, well, let's hold up. Remember Miss Rhoda earlier, the Health and Human Services whistleblower? She said that the missing children were being sent to sponsors, and some sponsors are criminals and traffickers and members of transnational criminal organizations. Yes, that's true. So maybe there is a connection. I'm not saying there is, but um, it's just interesting to point out. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> okay, man. Yeah. Let's point it out. <laughs> the following <laughs> month, March, Cindy's dad, Otto, would meet with Roy in downtown Vancouver at a donut shop while wearing a wire in hopes that Roy would slip up. He didn't, but Otto also told Roy to stop any contact and communication with his daughter. After that meeting... Roy wrote a six-page letter to Otto describing his own theory about who was after Cindy and why, that being the Mafia. He also told Otto that he should pursue that angle, but that angle was never taken seriously. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will have to end part one of Cindy James. And we will pick up, as usual, next week for part two and the conclusion of the mysteries surrounding Cindy James. Yes, I'm stoked, man. I'm this is like freaky stuff dude like I don't know every time I think it's someone then I'm like oh maybe it's maybe it's actually this person no maybe it's Cindy so yeah I don't know every every time we reveal new facts I just have more questions absolutely and it's only going to get stranger nothing in this case makes a whole lot of sense at all absolutely yeah well hopefully we can get some of those questions answered for not only you Scott but for our steadfast listeners supporters and super fans next week And if you would, ladies and gentlemen, please click that subscribe button. Also, like and share us wherever you listen to your podcast. And give us some great reviews wherever you can. You can also follow us on Twitter. Check out our Facebook page, where you can find our Ko-Fi page, where you can then make a donation and become a Paranaut. It's kind of like Patreon, but they don't take an exorbitant fee from your donations. And join the crew, join the rest of the people, and don't forget to email us. The old, good old-fashioned email. Be part of the show. Send us something. We'd like to read it. We'd like to talk about it. We'd like to share it. So send us something. Yeah, everybody's got a crazy story. If you have something you want us to share on the show, let us know. Let us know. We want to get the fans involved in the show. That is why we are implementing a special listener email segment. Those are always fun, man. Always fun indeed. And remember, the best way to spread the word about the Paranautica podcast is by word of mouth. Get on your tricycle and annoyingly honk your horn at every person you ride by and politely suggest that they start listening to the Paranautic Podcast. (laughs) Wonderful idea. Another wonderful idea is for you, dear listeners, to come back next week. Get a second dose in the neck of Cindy James where we will conclude this awful mystery. Thank you all for being part of this and helping us make this a better podcast for you. We appreciate all of you out there the world over. So good morning, good afternoon, good night, and goodbye. Until next time, stay safe, be gentle. And always wipe back to front. Everybody knows that every time, every (laughs) one. No matter if it's poo or pee, got to go back to front. It's for the environment. For the environment. Damn you, Chagall. I'd I'd, I'd hit you, but that ponytail makes you look incredibly Oh, sing all, no.
hold my face with your hands. Tell me, tell me, Chagall. No, 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 Chagall. So soft, so delicate, so, 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 so small. No, matter of fact, that, that, that you look at me, that's so small. Tell, tell me the way you look at me. Hold my delicate face with your hands. That small, that soft, so delicate, so soft, my. So small. Tell me, Chanel, are you a man who likes to be shaped? Paranautica.